He is co-founder with Megan Shaw Prellinger of the Prellinger Library, an appropriation-friendly uh, reference library located in San Francisco. And Rick has partnered with the Internet Archive to make 1,969 films from Prellinger Archives available online for free viewing, downloading, and reuse. With the Voyager Company, a pioneer new media publisher, he produced 14 laser discs and CD-ROMs with material from his archives. His feature-length film, Panorama Ephemera, depicting the conflicted landscapes of 20th century America, opened in 2004. He is currently board president of the Internet Archive. Ladies and gentlemen, Rick Pellin. Thank you. I'm, I'm fiddling around here because I want to make sure I can see my notes. Even though remarks is a remarkably open term and it means I can really say anything, I'd like to make sure I have my notes. Um, and I do. Uh, some people call me a recovered archivist, but you can really never recover from the pleasure of working with educational media, which was a large chunk of what I used to collect. And so I'm going to begin with a lightning-fast skim over the surface of the history of moving images in education. Film goes back about 113 years, but visual ed um, goes even further back, perhaps beginning with Comenius, touted to be one of the first visual educators. This is from an 1842 edition of his Orbis Pictus. Um, come here, boy, learn to be wise. This is the Orbis itself. Um, the Orbis Pictus is interesting. It depicts its world and um, many of its imperfections. I've, I've omitted the, the pictures that go with this little passage. But at the same time, some interesting, rather utopian things were happening. 1826, the Lyceum Movement, founded in Massachusetts. The Chautauqua in 1874, adult education, face-to-face -face, uh, learning, traveling around the country. And before that, or at the same time, the Panorama, the museum, the Cabinet of Curiosities, um, now undergoing renaissance. Lantern slides, of course. Um, the term visual education goes back to 1906, we think. And this is Edison making his first predictions. Fortunately or unfortunately, he got it wrong. You see that in 1913, he was suggesting that essentially by 1923, the books would be dead. And he tried to cover his tracks in 1922. It's a little unfair to pick on Edison, but this is canonical, so here you go. Um, visual educators were the educational radicals of their day, and I, I'd love to fork out this point when we get too bureaucratic. They believed in the truth, the efficacy, and the efficiency of the image. Their journals and textbooks are filled with almost uh, obligatory critiques of verbalism. I'm, of course, today trying to fight verbalism in this talk, too. They're there even when it came to advocating felt boards and field trips over textbooks and rote learning. Visual ed is a very, very broad umbrella. They kept constantly updated totals of the numbers of films that were sitting in school film libraries, the deployment of projectors in schools. It's almost like now you hear you know, the figures on broadband penetration and, and so on. They fought to, for two things, really, to build a distribution infrastructure and then to populate it with what we would today call content. Uh, um, Audiovisual educators were not just, they didn't confine their activism to um, schools per se. They actively promoted AV and further education, and perhaps most interestingly in the community. Um, I'm thinking of the film council movement. This was a social movement as well. It was led by a uh, decentralized network of optimists throughout the country and the world. 
oops, who believed that no community should be left behind in AV revolution. They organized screenings and topics on, um, on discussions on burning importance. There's still actually a few film councils left, including one in New York. And the history, we've, we know the general outlines. 1921, um, Yale tries to really, for almost the first time, to systematically cover one subject in the curriculum with the Chronicles of America series, which actually are still sitting in many film libraries, even though they're um, 80 years old. Starting in the late 20s, the development of Eastman teaching films, then the, the first peer-reviewed tests on the efficacy of classroom film, and then later on the spin-off to Irpy and, and Britannica. World War II, the big, um, the big sort of watershed, brought us the A-bomb radar, thousands upon thousands of surplus 16-millimeter projectors, Hundreds of new educational media producers, including the mom and pop shops, whose work is sometimes quite unusual. The Cold War and the National Defense Education Act of 1958 birthed a, a rich corpus of films and filmmakers. Some say this is when it all went downhill, when quality suffered because there was too much money coming into the field. The birth of educational TV in 1948 in three cities, uh, initially as a classroom media and on-site and then over the air. 1952 NET programs start to exchange. Um, instructional TV gets big in the late 50s and early 60s, and people are very, they have a, 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 a great sense of its promise. The Ford Foundation spends $25 million to study ITV. Schools are overcrowded. There's the baby boom. There's a school funding crisis. There's a teacher shortage. And in the most general terms, the idea was to put talented teachers on TV and then have ordinary classroom teachers be the supplementation, do individual instruction. This was not a success. Um, and then the 60s. This is another interesting point if you're interested in kind of media ecology and how it's reflected in style. We see educational film detour into an endless loop of Super 8 cartridges which were hailed for a time as the future of visual education, where no lesson can exceed 10 minutes. We see a progression of early video formats. This is what make archivists tear their hair out today. And above all, we see an anti-hierarchical movement and an end to certain kinds of authority. Um, the old films, how do I do this? The old films where every image was carefully composed, where you never saw anything in, oops, scroll. Um, the old films in which every image was very carefully composed, you never saw anything by accident. Um, they gave way to sort of visually chaotic, unpredictable, day-in-the-life films that were heavily influenced by cinema verite, by the new wave, often with twangy guitar soundtracks. Production shifted from places like Chicago and Hollywood to Cambridge and Berkeley. At the same time, you see the beginning of diversity of faces in the films and subjects that are being treated. Um, this, by the way, is the all-woman TV station in Chicago during World War II. Did you know about that? Um, I've always wanted to make a documentary about how the world changed between 1950 and 2000 and use educational films to tell the story. How educational films shouldered the responsibility for changing consciousness, promoting self-esteem, values clarification, moved away from learning to more to softer, but in some ways just as profound, if not more, subjects. The emergence from the margins of women and so-called minorities, how change was in, reflected in style and how the films document this. That's my six-hour 
PBS program pitch. Um, there's also a, a parallel narrative, which is how non-theatrical film, which was once an artisanal activity, turned into a highly organized and differentiated industry. And now it's gone back to being a special practice, a high art, and some people don't like that. So to sum up, um, university productions, very, very long tradition. Back to the teens, frankly. Um, ETV, another long tradition, 1948 on, moved from the lecture and morphed into public TV. Today, and rather than bringing the classroom out into the world, it brings the world into the classroom. There's been a, a, a shift. Um, a large, large educational film industry, many, a few majors, and then this large cadre of homegrown mom-and-pop filmmakers. Um, In-house production boom, courseware. Um, then the interactive tradition, we're starting to get closer to the present. Teaching machines, uh, the films with, with, with uh, sequences of black leader to allow for you know, classroom discussion, participation. What would you do? What do you think? Um, then video discs. So all in all, perhaps of a, a quarter of a million works produced in an uncountable number of educational TV programs. Just a handful are still in distribution or even remembered today, and it's one of the great, great losses of media history. Um, that much, much of this work turned out to be ephemeral. Um, so a few thoughts about possible best practices. I have four, in no particular order. Um, leverage existing resources. So there's vaults, which today we're starting to call silos, um, full of existing works that no one might ever get to see, uh, let alone reuse. Um, we're being excessively deferential in the face of claims we haven't received from copyright holders we can't identify. We need to free educational media from obscurity. Much of it, at first glance, might seem to have no current value. Um, this rule of the 5%, or some people say the 10%, some people say the 1%, nobody knows. Um, but if you fix the material in a longer gaze, there is a there there. And uh, many of these programs, I think, have value as segments, if not um, in their original form. Um, I think we need to free educational and public television archives. We need to, to break up the stasis. My call to funders today is let's May we convene and figure out how to organize the great buyout of all the rights that are bundled within educational and public TV from year one to today, my minus three, three years ago, and do it at a bulk discount rate. Could we try to demonetize what's a relatively economically insignificant but tremendously important area of culture and make it freely available? This is something we'll come back to. Um, segmentation, granularity. This may seem a small topic and unworthy of a keynote, but I actually think it's a small thing that yields large benefits. Um, we can add substantial value to the archival heritage or the archival corpus by cutting it into little pieces. As uh, the architect Keller Easterling once said, subtraction is growth. And it's just as true for film and video as it is for urban planning. Um, I'll explain. Uh, at the Internet Archive, there's almost 2,000 films from my archives that each averaging about 12 minutes in length. It's really hard to touch a 12-minute rich media object. They're not internally addressable. You can't tell the site to start playing offset three minutes, 10 seconds from the head. You can't tell the site to concatenate one segment with another and build a playlist. And our archives are filled with quarter-hour, half-hour, hour-long shows. And 
I, I know that there will be tools, and you know, some sites support this already, where you can offset and where you can go. And, but in some ways, if we break them into short logical segments with human intervention, I'm not talking about doing this automatically here, um, we actually gain a tremendous amount of value. And I think we can add coherence to the sprawling, unwieldy body of legacy media collections. I like the fact that queries might respond more closely to hits. And I love the fact that um, uh, you could support informal browsing. You have to move away from uh, the situation where queries are sort of do or die. So we might do this with our film that we give away for free. And it's something you could actually charge for as an added value service. Openness. Um, the concept of open production, which this is all about, which Peter has articulated, which Hewlett, many of the other people here, it's tremendously exciting. It sees production not as a one-shot deal, but as a continuum. And it recognizes that openness and education have, um, are conceptually and practically tied together. But um, if we want to avoid doing educational TV and public TV all over again, we need to do some hard work with the idea of openness. Um, openness is not binary, and content, terrible word, isn't simply open or closed. Uh, openness we need to think of as a broad spectrum of possible interactions between educators, producers, archives, and users. Openness is tough. Um, what does it mean? Here's an example. Openness means not just seeing the image of a book page, but seeing the text too, and being able to mix and manipulate it. This is one of the books we've scanned um, in partnership with the Internet Archive. There's the page image on the left. This is typically what you'd see. It's a PDF. Google will show you a PDF. Microsoft will show you a PDF. There's the ASCII text, dirty, as it comes out of the, the software. But you can take that text and you can mash it up. You can quote it. You can paste it into your own document. It's open. It's opener content. Um, so we're not just talking about watching a movie, but being free to download the shots, the EDL, the timeline, make your own cut. This is very BBC Creative Archive, and I really have to follow what um, Paul said by talking about how important the Creative Archive has been. It's been the focus of many, many people's hopes. So many people who are out there, lay people, not professional media producers have been watching the Creative Archive, and it's raised expectations tremendously, and I hope we can support him, and I, I also hope that if it can't be done at the BBC, let's do it here. Really, really important. Um, so not just the movie, but the, the, the components, not just the music, but the MIDI. Openness on the web means that everyone can crawl, navigate, and index what they find. And openness isn't simply the freedom to to consume, to read, listen, watch, feel, smell, taste. I'm thinking about web something point oh. But also the freedom to remix in, in these same domains. So in the digital world, it means you really have to get your hands on the object itself and touch the code that makes it play or display. And everything needs to be editable. And I'd also add that openness means freedom to annotate, freedom to share the networked experience with others. Um, and in order to make that happen, we'll really need to integrate editing tools better with our services. We talk at the Internet Archive a lot about the, the Swiss Army knife for video that allows you to do primitive concatenation, primitive playlists, no, no fancy, you know, you don't, need the, you don't need the blur filter, whatever, but you just need to be able to make some playlists and pass them around. Um, openness also enables interoperability. 
and I think this is something that um, people are starting to think about uh, in the in the uh, library world a great deal. But um, think of quilting. Quilting is a very early form of sampling. A patchwork quilt combines pre-existing fabric from a variety of sources, and quilting relies on what geeks call interoperability, the ability of elements to fit into a matrix and, and function together, which is, of course, what makes the internet work. Um, we have a golden opportunity now to enable interoperable systems, services, and collections, and I really hope we think about that. I'd like a piece of a program from GBH Online to fit in a playlist and add it with something from Columbia, from the Internet Archive, and even from, from Google YouTube. Interoperability rests on openness, and today openness is threatened in many ways. Um, while some companies have built business models around openness, there are many others that have not. And many nonprofit and publicly funded organizations are deferring to enclosure and sometimes perpetuating it. So that if we're to freely cite the work of others and to merge past and present and build these new kinds of services and the new works that we want to see, we need to make sure that openness is at the core of our activities. We need to default to openness rather than the alternative so that we can share cultural material as freely as the law allows. One last thought on openness. So online video archives are tremendous data sets for computational research. We don't see enough of this in the open world. A lot of this happens in the, in the, in the world that's, that's not publicly disclosed. But open video data sets are few and far between, and they're very much sought after. And these are other reasons why we should, should build this. Um, moratorium. So six years ago, I couldn't have explained how we could put up our best material online for free downloading and unrestricted reuse and cause our revenue to more than double. I had no way to imagine that. There were no models to follow. Um, we need new models. We need to give them the freedom to flourish. Um, and I'm, I would suggest one possibility is that we declare a, a period of experimentation for educational video where almost anything can go. In other words, to declare a moratorium, I understand that it has to be temporary, on enclosure, on complex licensing arrangements, on restrictive copyrights. Let's uh, make a period where new models can define themselves and flourish. Let's, um, let's enable Paris in the 20s rather than Silicon Valley in the 90s. That's another way of putting it. Um, let some different ecologies flourish. See what sticks. See which ones can cause the production of better media. For at least a few years, let's apply copyright homeopathically rather than a weapon of shock and awe. I don't know if we can do this, but the more territory that we claim and the more models we can float, um, the stronger this field will be. And then if we decide that we're going to be about billable events, and some of us will have to be about billable events, there'll be many more ways to make them happen. So really, really quickly, a few points of departure to put my recovered archivist hat back on. It's very, very happy to be here. One of the cool things about this project is that we're going to, we have the opportunity to bridge production, archiving, and education. Archives really, really need this, and here's why. Moving image archives face a very complex set of pressures right now. Traditionally, they've privileged preservation over access. You know, we're talking about best of breed today. That was not best of breed, although he was much loved. Um, in, part, in part, this has been because of deference to copyright holders and in part because of a legacy culture that's made access a very sticky door, as we were just talking about. But in recent years, archives have faced unprecedented demand for their holdings, 
from a completely new group of users. Archives have gone retail. People look upon archives as the dog looks upon the plate of cookies. It's the unattainable gold that they want but they can't get. And some forward-thinking collections have tried to respond to this and figured out how to open up to the public and go online. But we run into problems, and there's the YouTube issue. This is a little mini rant about YouTube, and I would, I'd summarize it this way. Media archives face such internal opposition and such difficulty from copyright holders that they tend to take baby steps towards opening up their collections. And then suddenly, amid all of these good intentions, we have YouTube, which in a very short time raised public expectations, which is a wonderful, wonderful thing. But they raise public expectations to the point that it's hard to see how any public institution can ever meet them. You know, we can't do what YouTube does. We don't have um, the latitude. So I don't want to over-dramatize, but I think archives lost. And we have to figure out how to recoup. Um, so education is the strategic direction that may keep moving image archives and the chips over the next few years. Um, a closer relationship to the education sector is maybe just what archives need to renew and sustain the consensus that legitimizes them, um, keeps a little bit of funding flowing. You know, archives really rest on what I believe is ultimately a fairly tenuous um, social and cultural consensus. There has to be a sense that um, it's worth supporting them. And if people begin to look at archives as institutions that are obstacles to access, uh, archives are in trouble. And, you know, there's a generational shift about how people regard archives. So we really have to, to push. Lack of archives will kill that cultural consensus. We can learn from England, where they're doing great things. Um, the UK lives under a rights regime that we would, Americans, would consider draconian. You, you have much less in the public domain. There's many more people that own a, a chunk of media. And yet, despite these limitations, it's this perfect example, you know, that you can, the limitations in some ways allow you to, to prosper. Um, they're doing so much more than we are to mobilize archives and make them available. As long as you work within the, ed, the education sectors in England, you can do tremendous, tremendous things. So it isn't the populist paradise, but it's a good start. We've heard from uh, Murray, the, the BFI is putting um, feature films and other wonderful material online through the Media Tech and Screen Online, and they've started working on Voices, which is a, a landmark project to put um, all sorts of really, really interesting material about the evolution of policy, society, and culture online. We need to emulate these projects, and in doing so, we'll liberate archives from our legacy history. Um, we always think a lot about repurposing, because the archives are full, and sometimes people think it's cheaper to repurpose material than to make new content. Um, this should give us pause. There's a long history of this. Um, MGM cut its features into short educational films, which they distributed. You know, gangster films became cut down. They went into the Crime Does Not Pay series, and she kind of the, the reversal of, uh, of the original you know, exploitation intent. Um, this has been, you know, we have many, many TV shows in the can we could do this with, but I wonder about reconstituting material that's basically entertainment as education. And a lot of um, material that's been pushed through educational and public TV channels um, of, of distribution in the past 
few years is probably somewhat more entertainment. I, I, it's going to take some thought about repurposing. Should we digitize all the lectures? You know, should we, should all courseware be up? Or are we really doing the Mütter Museum all over again? You know the medical museum in Philadelphia? It's a 19th century Victorian cabinet of medical curiosities. And it turns out not to be so much about medicine as it is about medical museums. So it's self-referential, and I wonder if old educational programs are really about old educational programs. Um, so do we need to break with the past? This is a Socratic question, or alternatively, is everything just raw material for future mashups? And I'd say let's leave this to the viewers and the students to uh, resolve. The idea that we turn viewers into makers and consumers into producers, it's gotten a lot of play, and it's getting a little old, but it's still a practical way of striving towards utopia. Um, User-generated content enriches the libraries, but it also embodies a dialogue between educators and producers and audiences. And I'd say that this dialogue isn't just going to be about the substance of the resources, what's in them, but about their shape and design. And one thing is clear, we're going to have to come to terms with the language uh, and not just the style of gaming. So these are some of my thoughts, and thank you. Thank you.